0: Hello and welcome to the Superposition Guys podcast. My name is Yuval and my guest today is Earl Campbell, VP of Quantum Science at Riverlane. We discuss the challenges and solutions in making quantum computing practical, including creating reliable qubits in large numbers and managing noise as systems scale. Earl emphasizes that the number of physical qubits needed for a logical qubit varies based on error rates and the type of error correction code used, notes his belief about upcoming breakthroughs in the industry, and much more. We hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, Earl, and thank you for joining me today. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: So who are you and what do you do? My name is Earl Campbell. I'm VP of quantum science at River Lane. And here I work on helping to make... <laughs> it starts at to the beginning already. Um, yeah. So I'm Earl Campbell. I'm VP of quantum science at Riverlane. And at Riverlane, we're working to uh, make quantum computing useful sooner. So at the moment, what that means at Riverlane is that we're building systems for error correction, control systems, and also working on quantum algorithms.
0: What is the biggest hurdle you think right now? You mentioned a couple of things. What's the biggest hurdle to making quantum computers useful?
1: Um, Making reliable qubits and enough of them and the infrastructure to make those qubits reliable, I think those are the key issues. So, um, I think there are systems where people have demonstrated really good one and two qubit gates between one or two qubits. But as you go to hundreds of qubits, which is where some of the bigger systems are at the moment, noise starts to get a little bit out of hand. And there are a few systems that can really kind of reach that scale with error rates of anything better than about um, 1%. So that means that if you do 100
0: quantum gates, then you'll most likely have already encountered an error. Let's assume I'm a quantum computing vendor, and- say a superconducting one, and I've got a working system. It's got, you know, 50 qubits, it's got some error rate. How do I work with you? What can you deliver to me and how would you make my system better?
1: There are many different ways that we work with hardware partners. Um, one of the main ways that we work with them is by helping them with error correction problems. So if you don't know anything about error correction, then we can help you even design what the first experiment might look like. And uh, one thing that we also do is that we can help people with decoding. So this is a big part of the work we do, and this can work in a few different ways. We can uh, design a single experiment or an architecture that you might want to work towards for a larger system. We can uh, decode in post-processing some of the results of those decoding experiments. Or even grander than that, we can do real-time decoding experiments together. So what this means would be taking something that we have, our decoder IP, and then putting it on someone's control system and then decoding in real time. Um, And we can go even further than that because Riverlane has its own control systems. So we can deliver a complete packaged integrated control and decode system to help you do
0: error correction. Could you explain what a decoder is? Is that something that happens during the calculation? Is that something that happens in post-processing that helps me overcome errors? What is a decoder in the context of error correction? It determines what gates you have to do later. There's a kind of adaptiveness that is required.
1: And so you can't just leave it to some arbitrary late time because you need to solve that decoding problem before you do your next gate. Sometimes I paraphrase this as the speed of your decoder determines the speed of your quantum computer because the faster you can decode, the faster you can do logical gates.
0: In your experience, or how many physical qubits do I need to get a high-quality logical qubit? And does that change with different modalities? Hmm.
1: Great question. So the number of uh, physical qubits you need to make a logical qubit will depend on a few different things. It will depend on the choice of error correction code, what the noise model is like, how much how noisy the qubits are, and how good your decoder is. So let's just pick um a specific example. So let's say we're talking about the well-known surface code that Alexei Kataya first came up with in the 90s, and which is a really lovely code because you can implement it in 2D. And so this is a favorite, especially in superconducting systems. So let's say we say we take the surface code, and we consider just a fairly standard decoder like minimum weight perfect matching. And we say that there's a the error rate uniformly across these qubits is about 0.1%, right? So the error correction threshold that you need to get below is 1%. But if you try and build a full-time quantum computer at around 1%, the overhead will be enormous. So we need to get comfortably below the threshold. 0.1% is a kind of reasonable number because it's fairly below threshold. And people have seen numbers around 0.1% in small demonstrations of one or two qubits, they just don't see 0.1% error rates at scale. So it's it's something we know we can do. So if you take uh, all of those different settings, then what you end up with is that to suppress error rates down to say one part in a trillion, you're going to need about a thousand physical qubits. So that's the kind of good baseline, from which you can then go on and talk about other modalities, other codes, other decoders. Um, Now, of course, I've given you an optimistic estimate of what error rates we might be able to achieve. The main thing that happens when you talk about different modalities of qubits is that you change the error rate that you're likely to have. So I said that the error rate that often people have at scale is about 1%. A kind of realistic optimistic thing at scale is maybe 0.1%. If you take that 1% number sorry that 0.1% number and you move it higher so the qubits get noisier towards 1%, that 1000 qubit number explodes up towards infinite qubits. So what that tells you is that you really do need to have a qubit modality that is going to bring you comfortably below that 1% number. Um and then if you go below 0.1 further again, the number of qubits you need goes down and down and down. But it doesn't necessarily go down that rapidly. And so to me, once you get down to error rates of about one part in a, uh, one part in a thousand, so 0.1%, uh, really what becomes important is more how fast you can do the gates and how cheap the qubits are rather than the error rate. Um,
0: So you mentioned a thousand physical qubits to beca- to a logical qubit in your example. Now, as I think of the IBM roadmap, for instance, they're about to announce a thousand qubit chip or will announce it soon. And so if they implemented what you just described, you would have one logical qubit, which is fun, but probably useless. Yeah. So are you... A couple of years ahead of the market in terms of you have something that the market doesn't need for a while? Or do you think that people can use such a product today?
1: Yeah, I think I was just giving a a baseline example of a specific kind of error rate and code and what you would need to get the error rate all the way down to one part in a trillion. So one part in a trillion is much lower than one part in a hundred. So there are actually many, many stepping stones along the path to getting to what we sometimes call the TerraCrop regime, which is where you're trying to get error rates, logical error rates down to one part in a trillion. So many of the partners that we work with at the moment are at the stage where they're trying to demonstrate that they can do error correction. Their qubits are of a sufficient quality now that they can suppress logical error rates. And so, and and usually they're thinking about just doing it for a single logical qubit. So. Um, In that sense, I don't think we are ahead of the market because many of the people we work with are struggling to figure out how to do these things themselves, what the requirements are for their system. And indeed, the IBM example you gave is a great one because um, what code you choose to go with can influence how you build your device. So if IBM had a thousand qubits, they wouldn't actually be able to do the thousand qubit surface code because most of their... Devices are currently built with something called the heavy hex lattice. And this was actually the result of some kind of earlier architecture. They work, they did with, uh, led by Christopher Chamberlain and some others where they looked at a specific code that they thought would be nice. And the nice property about it was that, uh, each qubit only interacted with three other qubits instead of four other qubits and the IBM fixed frequency transmons. They don't like to be connected to a large number of qubits. So for IBM, this was an attractive thing, but it does mean that to achieve the same amount of error suppression, they need even more physical qubits than if they were using the surface code. So they chose some time ago to go in this direction of having fewer connections uh, because that was easier for them to realize. And and the most recent update to the IBM roadmap is that they're going to go completely the opposite direction now. They've been advertising that they're going to go towards QLDPC codes, which require much higher connectivity and longer range connectivity. And the attraction of those is that assuming you can engineer these things, the number of qubits you would require is far fewer. So um, there are claims uh, and some numerical simulations to back up the claims that you might need, say, 10 times fewer physical qubits per logical qubit. If you use QLDBC codes instead of the surface code, but there are still some pretty immense engineering challenges for people to um, overcome before they demonstrate the first QLDPC code logical qubits.
0: Assuming everyone wants error correction, which I think is is a given. Yes. And the the various codes, surface code, color code, STEAM code, A32 code, whatever, are, are known. Where is the difficulty for people to do it themselves? Is it in a really fast sampling? Is it in taking these that data and converting it to something useful fast enough? What is the unique value that Riverlane brings? Oh, it's uh, almost every step of the journey.
1: Uh, I mean, then the, hard, the hardest end of the spectrum of things that we do is that we build the hardware decoders that work in real time. And so to do this, what we have is we have a team of people, including scientists with a background in air creature like myself, um, some people who have come from other backgrounds like mathematics and computer science, and then digital design engineers with a background from um, some of them came from ARM, for example. And so, assembling that team, getting them to learn a common language is really a non, you know, it's a, it's a lot of work and it's a big investment. For most companies, it's going to be Far too big an investment for them to uh, to make themselves, and the fact that we are doing it on behalf of many, many different hardware companies means that there's a kind of um, yeah we can we can do a much better job than if you split all of those people up equally between all of the hardware companies. I mean, all those people would be duplicating effort all over the place. So that's a one very hard engineering end of the spectrum, I find that even fairly, um, kind of more near-term architectural questions, like what should my first logical qubit look like? Uh, most companies don't have enough people that have, you know, the years of experience of looking at lots of different QBC codes to be able to, um, tell what would be best for their
0: system. People have been speaking about a quantum chat GPT moment where all of a sudden the industry realizes that this is great and and you should really jump into quantum. What is that moment in your view? What needs to happen or what's the demonstration or what's the technical threshold that gets the industry to this moment in your opinion?
1: Yeah, it's another great question. I mean, I think sometimes people get stuck in local minima in their thinking, and they remember the most recent thing that was a big moment. I'm sure that actually there have been many big moments across the years for AI, and there are many more of them uh, down the road. So definitely ChatGPT was a, a big moment, but there are actually lots of incremental advances, some of them building up to ChatGPT. So there's the famous Google Transformer paper that was out several years before the big chat GPT moments. So in fact, uh you only in some sense learned about the impact of that earlier transformer work many years after the big breakthrough was made. And it took a while for people to catch up. Um, so yeah, I'm kind of a little bit skeptical of fixating on uh moments, but let me try anyway. Um I think we've already had a, a few great moments in the field, but there's so I think I mentioned one really great experiment already that came from the Google team, which was this demonstration of a logical qubit. So I think you were saying, look, there's a long way to get to a thousand physical qubits, but in fact, the fact that we've seen error correction work in the sense that when we go from a smaller system to a larger system, the reliability of the qubit improves, which is really the hallmark feature of error correction. The fact that that has happened was a massive milestone. And indeed, if you asked me uh, when I started my PhD back in 2005, what I thought the prospects were, even though I was working in the area, maybe it wouldn't have even been that optimistic that it would have happened by that point in time. And this is because back in 2005, uh, the surface code wasn't very well known. Uh, In fact, we thought that if you wanted to do error correction, you needed to reduce error rates to below one part in a million. One part in a million, not 1% one part in a million before it even starts to work. And, you know, I was going to talks by experimental groups that were really world leading and they were still stuck at around 5% error rates. So really there was this gulf of, you know, four or five orders of magnitude (laughs) between where we were and where we wanted to be. So there has been a a massive um, shift. We've crossed a threshold literally, but that still means that there's quite a lot of work to do. And where that work, uh, where the bottlenecks are, is different for different qubit types um, and also for different aspects of the stack. So I think there have also been big moments in error correction from the decoding side in the last year. So Riverlane had its paper out about its FPJ and ASIC decoders, um, where we found that we could go up to very large systems, uh, decoding fast enough to keep up with the error correction cycle whilst also having very kind of low memory and power usage. Um, Other similar results were seen by uh, the Yale University team. And, you know, this is also another problem where if you go back, let's say even to a conference on error correction back in 2017, I remember Austin Fowler from Google standing up and giving a talk and talking about his attempt to build a code that was fast enough, and he really had thrown everything he could think of at the problem, and still he was at least 10x off where he wanted to be. Um, So there have been a few breakthroughs. If we think about supercomputing qubits, you mentioned the large uh, IBM chip was of order about a thousand qubits. I think there's a reason why the largest one they have is about a thousand qubits, and that reason is cables. So there's a a big kind of control electronics slash uh, cabling, cooling power bottleneck that you hit around a thousand qubits that you really have to engineer your way around. So the really big moments will be when we find ways to massively compress all of those electronics, reduce the uh, power consumption and get everything in a kind of nicely packaged unit that you could really pack many more than a thousand qubits in. And for that, we need progress on multiple fronts.
0: We spoke about a lot about superconducting qubits, but obviously there are other modalities. Do you feel that a certain modality is better or worse than others in the march towards error correction?
1: Yeah, I think, uh, many different qubit, all the qubit types have different advantages and different hurdles that they have to yeah. over. So I know that you work at QAIR. Uh, there have been some brilliant advances in neutral atoms in recent years, so really it's jumped ahead in terms of the uh, the number of qubits that they can handle, and you know many people predict that uh, neutral atoms might be the first platform where they have tens of thousands of of qubits, uh, partly because they don't have the same bottlenecks around a thousand qubits that some other systems have. Um, of course, you know, there are disadvantages. I think people maybe fixate on qubit number over other important metrics. The amount of time it takes to perform logic is also very important. And a round of error correction or the time it takes to a logically error-corrected gate in both neutral atoms and ion traps can be many orders of magnitude longer than it is in uh qubits or perhaps even silicon qubits. Um, yeah, so there,
0: there are there are many trade-offs to be considered. As we get close to the end of our conversation, I wanted to ask you a hypothetical. If you could have dinner with one of the quantum greats, dead or alive, who would that person be? Oh, wow. Uh, I think I've been lucky to have uh, dinner
1: with quite a few great people already. But um, let me see.
0: Um... I suspect most of them were alive. So you, you now I've expanded the universe. You could actually choose the dead people as well. Yeah.
1: I'm maybe going to go with Alexi Katayev.
0: Yeah. And why?
1: Why? Um, well, Alexi Katayev invented the surface code. Uh, so he's very important for that reason. He's done lots of other great work. Another topic that... Uh, actually for me personally had a huge impact on my trajectory was magic state. So I spent a long time working on um, magic state theory and factories. So this is a way of doing non Clifford gates in fault tolerantly. And uh, really a landmark paper in that field, uh, that subfield should I say was by Alexei Kataev and Sergey Bravi that had a huge impact on my career. Um, I've already had the luck, the, uh, you know, the, the lucky pleasure of working with Sergey Bravi, so I know him quite well. And I've seen Alexey Gatayev from afar on the Caltech campus, uh, walking past as he rushed off to get his lunch, but I've not actually met him in person. And so uh, if I could grab Alexey at uh, the Caltech campus and have lunch with him, that would be great.
0: Wonderful. Errol, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Yuval.